Thank you, Wes. Let's say a prayer. Lord, may your word reach us today as we need to be touched and assured again of the truth of your gospel. Amen. Winston's garage and workshop sadly burned down one night and his wife, Nada, duly rang up the insurance company. We had that workshop insured for £90,000, she said, and I want my money. The insurance agent replied, well, Nada, insurance doesn't quite work like that. We will determine the value of what was insured and we'll provide you a new one of comparable worth. And there was a long pause and then Nada said, in that case, can I cancel the insurance policy on my husband? Or the person who cancelled his life insurance policy because after paying it for 18 years, suddenly dawned on him that he would never receive it when he was alive and he couldn't receive it when he was dead. Which is, incidentally, the very reason why some older insurance companies were known as assurance companies. Because the policies that they focused upon were policies where there was certainly a, pro, a, pro, um, a prediction that uh, what you'd insured would come to pass. Well, today I want to talk about assurance rather than insurance. Uh, and of those two readings, just open up the, 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 the sheet, please. The two readings, it's the last verse of both readings that I just want you to hold in your minds. John's Gospel first. The last verse. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And then some years later, the epistle of John, catching a similar theme, verse 13 is this. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Believing and knowing. Faith and the assurance of faith that we might know we have eternal life. Assurance is a very Wesleyan doctrine and it lies at the heart of that most often quoted passage from the journal of John Wesley, how he went to a society uh, in Aldersgate Street in May 1738 and he heard the word of God being expounded and he wrote, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. And so real, so important was this experience of assurance uh, 
the ability to know. That he made it an expected, even required, religious experience for members of Methodist societies. Almost as important as salvation itself was that you knew you were saved. You were assured of it. And only after very, very many years, 1770s, possibly into the 1780s, did John and Charles accept openly that God did not seem to give such assurance to everyone all the time, including some who they recognized were undoubtedly saved. And John wrote to Charles in later life about the doctrine of assurance, I'm surprised they did not flog us. I don't think he meant sell them. Yet the doctrine of assurance was never abandoned by the Methodism. It was merely tempered. So to this day, when we recite what we refer to as the four alls of Methodism, it includes assurance of salvation. All need to be saved, the doctrine of universal sin. All can be saved, the doctrine of universal grace. All can know that they are saved, the doctrine of assurance. All can be saved to the uttermost, the doctrine of perfecting love. Now, I wonder how we respond this morning to being told that we can and we should expect to have an assurance of our salvation and our eternal destiny. Perhaps we don't feel such assurance. Perhaps we feel deficient or ashamed. Perhaps if we do feel such assurance, we feel thankful or possibly proud. Well, both sets of responses misunderstand the nature of assurance. Because like all God's blessings, assurance is a gift. John does not speak about assurance as something to be striven after and pursued, but as a promise to be received with deep gratitude. He writes, I write to you who believe that you may know. Now, why is this important? Well, because it's good to know certain things. It's good to know your loved ones love you and to be assured of their love. We hear people say sometimes, I don't believe my husband or my wife or my partner or my mother or my father or my son or my daughter love me anymore. Well, how do you know, we say? Don't they tell you? Oh, they say they do sometimes, but I can tell there's no commitment, there's no kind acts anymore, there's no thoughtfulness, there's no generosity. Now, God knows that it's good that we know that we are loved and saved by Christ. And God demonstrates that in several ways. I want to talk briefly, promise you briefly about three. 
First of all, I want you to note that all through history, God is the initiator of saving acts of love, of invitations to a loving relationship with God. To Abraham, the father of the faith, as it were, in the scriptures, to Abraham, God says something truly staggering. In Genesis, it says, God, it has God saying to Abraham, if I don't keep my covenant with you, Abraham, may it be with me as it is with these dead sacrifices. In other words, if I don't keep my promise to you, then you can just abandon and burn this faith which I'm initiating with you and your people. Moses encounters God in a burning bush. Isaiah encounters God in the temple. We could go through the whole of the Old Testament. But the common factor is that God takes the initiative. And God takes the initiative about assurance, about the ability to know. You can know, God says to us, that I created you. You can know that I love you. And this is demonstrated throughout the scriptures and of course supremely demonstrated in the life and death of Jesus Christ. David Livingstone, that great 19th century Christian missionary to Central Africa wrote in somewhat typical Victorian style in the inside page of his Bible, it was found after his death. This is the word of a gentleman whose words can be utterly trusted and this is the end of the matter. And we know, don't we, that if a, a person is trustworthy and they promise us something, we find it far easier to trust in and live in the expectation of it coming to pass. The person who promises everything and doesn't keep them. Do you know, he promised me so, oh, he's promised that to everybody. How much more we should trust God's promises to us. God who demonstrated his covenantal saving love to us and then says, believe it and be assured of it. In the darkest times, Secondly, look at the ministry of Jesus. We often forget that the disciples of Jesus were a bunch of worldly wise, ordinary working men. Blokes, if you like. I often imagine them as Yorkshiremen, but then I would, wouldn't I? That is that they're not easily impressed. They would witness something marvelous. They'd come down, they're the group that come down from the hillside having listened to the Sermon on the Mount. And one Yorkshire disciple says to the other, what did you think about that? And the other one says, it's all right. They're not given to voluble expression. And as Jews, like the rest of their people, they believed in one God. They were monotheists. And these particularly Yorkshire type monotheists 
saw Jesus when he was up and down, when he was being adored and when he was being hated, when he was tired and when he was energized, when he was healing the sick and standing against demons, when things went right and when things went wrong. They saw him in public events and in private moments. And they were with him when the crowds arrived and they were still with him when the crowds went away. And one day Jesus turns round to that group and says, so who do people say I am? And Peter's famous response, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, draws an and possibly a squirm from some people who heard it. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Peter, because my Father in heaven's revealed this to you. It's the truth. To these hard-working, ordinary blokes, the titles that they normally gave to Jesus were happy to give to Jesus, like rabbi, like teacher, like healer, had started to become inadequate. And a group of Jewish monotheists begin to suggest that, Jesus, that God has a divine son. And in so doing, which is why there's a is that monotheists had begun to divide God into at least two. And as they continue to travel with him to Jerusalem and they live with him through his betrayal, his arrest, his trial, his beatings, his crucifixion, just like we will really from next week onwards in our church calendar. And they come to see after the resurrection, though it takes time. They come to see and proclaim that this was the greatest act of divine love that the world has ever witnessed. And then they witness his resurrection. And at first they can hardly believe that either, but they come to see and proclaim that Jesus is with those who have made him their savior and Lord forever. And therefore that to believe and trust in him is to be saved because trusting in him is never in vain, so that one of those disciples, as an elderly man, perhaps aided with a scribe or two, writes to a small church many, many years later than those events, I write these things to you who do believe in the name of the Son of God so that you might know that you have eternal life. And thirdly and lastly, we have the witness of the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit living in us who enables us to cry, Abba, Father, says Paul. It's the Spirit of God in us who makes effective the work of Christ. It's the Spirit of God who witnesses to our spirit that we are children of God. And the proof is not just internal, the witness of the Spirit in the Wesleyan tradition isn't just an internal thing, it's an external thing. Uh, and if you want to know why and how, go back and read the words of the very first hymn that we sang in this morning's service. 
Because every time someone recognizes something of God in you, some good deed, some gift, some fruit of the Spirit, some example of grace and patience, some act of mercy, they're witnessing that the Spirit is alive in you. And if, even when you don't feel it, if from time to time somebody says, thank you for that word, or thank you for your prayers, or I just needed to hear that, thank you for listening to me, or whatever. They're not just saying thank you to you, though that's nice. They're actually in a more profound way saying, I recognize that in the way that you've been with me, I discern the hallmark of the Spirit of God within you. So you can believe and know and know and believe that this gospel, this embodying faith, is true. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all bear testimony to divine love and salvation, and you can trust it. Trust in it, though you might not always feel it. Just as you don't always feel the love of loved ones, but that doesn't alter the fact that they love you. Feelings are, after all, sometimes rather fickle things. Why this sermon? Well, because I always preach to myself. I figure that if I'm disinterested in it, there's no reason why you should be bored. But similarly, if I find I need to remind myself of something, then you share in that rumination. And I told you two or three weeks ago, and in an evening service gave you an update of one of my long-standing friends who was recently diagnosed with terminal cancer. And I told you that Helen and I had traveled to the Southwest to visit him and his wife and to say goodbye. And he died last Saturday, a week yesterday. Bless him. He knew the fast approaching of his physical death. If ever there was a reason or a time to doubt or lose faith in God's love and eternal keeping. It's when you know yourself to be disappearing fast in every bodily function. And during those three hours that we had together, he talked of the devil sitting on his shoulder and whispering to him, you are not worthy. You are not saved. You are not going to heaven. And I was deeply worried. And I moved into pastor mode with my friend. And I said, but Clive, you know that's not true. And he grinned at me through his rather disfigured face. He said, of course it's not true. I said, so what did you do? He said, I told him he was a liar and he should clear off. Though he used stronger words than that. And he was right. Beyond all self-doubt, beyond all the accusations of the evil one, there lies a deeper truth. 
And it's this. When the Lord Jesus Christ says, whoever comes to me will be saved, then they will. And we can trust in that and know it to be true in the times of deepest trial. Assurance is not insurance. Insurance, you pay premiums to provide security against things happening, some of which will happen anyway. Assurance is a loving trust in God who loves you with an everlasting love and says to you, you can trust me forever and ever and always in every circumstance. This morning, we believe it and we receive it again. Amen.